Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13 as we return to this masterful chapter in our study of, of this wonderful book. It is universally recognized, this chapter, because of its beauty, because it is, of course, a subject that is found by many people to be beautiful, the subject of love, celebrated in all corners of the world, though often misconstrued. And yet we find here its perhaps truest expression, or we would say at least truest description laid out for us in these short and succinct, uh, succinct uh, compact statements given by the Apostle Paul. It's beautiful, of course, because of just simply what it talks about. Love is exalted even in Scripture, by God Himself. In fact, we're told that the one who doesn't know love doesn't know God. And so while we often measure ourselves in spiritual terms based on what we know and our ability to articulate various doctrines, the Scripture pushes us back to this measure, the measure of love. This is the one who we're told truly knows God, the one who we're told truly knows the gospel, the one we're told truly has comprehended the Savior and gives demonstration of the Spirit living inside of them. And so it's an exalted chapter just because of the exalted subject matter. There's no greater doctrine, no greater focus that you could have anywhere in Scripture but understanding love. But it's also exalted because of its structure. It is written in magnificent structure. We've told you in these three sections. Uh, there are the, uh, the first two affirmations of love, followed up by eight antitheses of love, and then finally four attitudes of love, which we'll get to this morning. But 14 combined characteristics in one of the most comprehensive descriptions of love you'll ever find. And not only that, the, that, that, that structure, those 14 components, but Paul gives them to us in these succinct and compact statements, often we would say even incomplete thoughts, but, but uh, condensed together for the purpose of impact, Paul gives these to us in sort of staccato fashion, in many cases leaving for us to fill in all of the implied all the implications and all the implied words that go along with it. And so we have been walking through this very slowly, very carefully, because of the importance of the subject and the compactness of the structure. And even today, as we'll see, as Paul rounds out this, with these hyperboles, these overstatements, given for the sake of effect, but still need to be carefully considered as we unfold them. Paul, we've been saying, unfolds this in these three structures that we've been looking at over the last three weeks, beginning with affirmations that he gives us of love, telling us that love is patient, love is kind. And then he gives us antitheses of love, which we looked at last week. Love doesn't envy, love in other words, doesn't stew in discontentment over the advantages of others. Love doesn't boast. That is to say, it doesn't always make itself the center of attention. Love isn't arrogant. Uh, that is to say, it doesn't have that raw uh, self-love which exalts its own 
strengths while it constantly diminishes or brings up the faults of others. Love isn't rude, that is to say, it doesn't act in crude and immodest and unseemly ways. A loving person, in other words, gives attention to the details of politeness and propriety and manners. Love doesn't insist on its own way, that is to say, it seeks the profit of others, even sometimes to the neglect of personal benefit and at the cost of personal gain. Love isn't irritable, he tells us, or we would say in colloquial terms, it isn't touchy. It, doesn't, it isn't easily set off or provoked. It isn't resentful, or some versions say it doesn't take into account wrong suffered. Paul tells us, finally, in that section, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing or in unrighteousness. That is because fundamentally, unrighteousness and wrongdoing is offensive to God. And so true love, which comes from God, could never rejoice in that which is offensive to God, but it doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It can't be entertained by it. It can't delight in it because it knows that those who engage in it suffer. And so we, at a very basic level, could not rejoice in unrighteousness. Because we could not rejoice in the destruction of any life at the cost of such things. Consequently, love rejoices in truth, the truth that's in God's Word. Everything that's unfolded as a pathway of righteousness, we rejoice in it because it brings glory to God. We rejoice in it because it brings blessing to others. Tara and I on vacation recently attended a church where the pastor was speaking and trying to uh, convince us and his congregation that Jesus was constantly in this turmoil between, he says, compassion and consistency. And he's always having to make these choices between being consistent with the Word of God or being compassionate. And in order to be compassionate, in order to be loving, he had to set aside consistency. He had to live inconsistently with the Word of God. Oh, we just grieved over the shallow understanding and the complete disregard for what Christ himself says about his own word, right? When Jesus speaks about the word of God, he says all of it, the, the law and the prophets are summarized by love. So far from inconsistency, love is the most consistent thing you can do. To be consistent with God's will, to be consistent with God's word is to be loving. And so Paul tells us here, love rejoices in the truth. It loves the truth. It would never want to do anything against the truth. And in order to love someone, it must want and desire the truth for them. This is what love is in its most basic sense. And so we understand, not only by Christ's teaching, but by what Paul is unfolding for us here, that in everything we do, we are, in the, even the smallest ways, we are either manifesting love or we are manifesting selfishness. It's the comprehensive nature of love. Well, he drives home that comprehensive nature for us here today in these final attitudes, which I mentioned to you are these uh, forms of hyperboles, exaggerations, overstatements for the sake of effect. And, and we could say maybe in one sense they're understatements because Paul doesn't give them with a lot of qualifiers. He just expects us and presents to us the responsibility of supplying the words 
which make them make sense. In other words, the words which make them coordinate with everything that he said so far and everything we know in Scripture that make them, we would say, consistent in themselves. He gives these four, final four all with the, uh, with the word all embedded into it. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. They're comprehensive and succinct statements. But to be properly understood, we have to supply certain things. For example, in the first statement and even in the fourth statement, when it talks about bearing, when it talks about enduring, we know innately Paul's talking about negative things. I mean, no one has to endure goodness, right? But we must bear up, we must endure bad things. And so when Paul says it bears all things, we understand all bad things. Or even in the second and the third, we understand those in a positive sense. Love believes the best things. It hopes for the best things. We understand innately that love could never hope for negative things. And it certainly doesn't follow the, the, the natural tendency of the flesh to just believe the worst about everyone. So when Paul gives these to us, it's our responsibility to unpack them, which we endeavor to do today. Paul, first of all, tells us that love, in its attitude, bears all things. As the translation that comes to us in the King James, New King James, NAS, ESV, they all render it that way. NIV says that love protects because they take that in a sense of covering. But probably the the best, the nearest sense was given by the old Tyndale version, which predates even the King James, when Tyndale said, love suffereth, love suffereth all things. That is because in the idea of this word is the concept of suffering. It has to do not only with suffering, but in the midst of suffering, some sort of resistance, some sort of, some sort of pushing back, if you will, against some force and sometimes against some thing. Paul is the only one that uses it in the New Testament, but in all places where he uses it, it always has this same sense, an idea of enduring some suffering, some negative circumstance without reacting, without responding. We would say at least resisting reaction as long as possible. Now you hear this clearly in the way he uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says there in the first verse, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer. Same word. We're bearing up. He says, he says, but here, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. Now, Paul had just mentioned at the end of 1 Thessalonians 2 about how he had personally been ripped away from them by circumstances, and, and he had a deep, deep longing to see them face to face and rejoice in their faith and rejoice in what was going on in their life. He had founded the church, and he was forced to leave after just a few months together with them, and so he was full of concern for their, their spiritual as well as their physical well-being. 
He had been separated for them, from them for a number of times, uh, for, for a long time. And now he says uh, on a number of occasions he wanted to come, but Satan had hindered him. And so he is, in the course of all these months, just torn up with anguish. He's wanting to know during those blessed three months and everything that he saw, he's wanting to know that those are the things which continue to be manifest, which continue to be true in their life. He wants to know how they're doing. I know something of this. I, I kind of feel or felt one time this kind of anguish because my wife uh, or Tara came to, to China where I proposed to her when I was in China. And then we you know, had a great time together. I put her on the plane. She flew back to Kenya, and I didn't hear from her for six months. Now, you can imagine what's going through my mind. And I'm writing letters to her, and I'm like, um, well, I mean, I hope, I, I believe you still feel the same way. I, I'm just believing, and I'm just, I, I, I know it must be true. And, of course, she was writing, the government was confiscating my letters. But I had this anguish. You can just imagine you know, is everything we experience true? Is it still there? Are those feelings still there? So this is what Paul's feeling. He's been separate. He was ripped away from them by persecution. And now it's persecution which is keeping him from getting, and he's just wondering, how are these baby Christians doing? And he says, I couldn't bear it anymore. It was too much, that, 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 that turmoil. I was resisting, I was resisting, I was looking for a way, and I just couldn't do it. And so I devised this plan to send Timothy to find out how you're doing. And he says there in verse 4, For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. And for this reason, I could bear it no longer. I wanted to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He says, I, I just, I was fighting and I was fighting the fear. I was fighting the worry. I was fighting the anguish. I was always battling. I was bearing up under all of that internal suffering. So you understand that this is the context in which Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 13. When he says love bears all things, what he means is it bears difficult circumstances. Difficult pressures, difficult people, without retaliating, without responding. Even in 1 Corinthians 9, he uses the word to speak about how he was in Corinth, and he was with them for a year and a half, and he labored with his own hands. He would spend all day toiling in a, a, probably a cramped and confined little workshop on tents, and then he would go from there and all evening Every evening, seemingly, he would go and teach them from house to house, admonishing them in every way. And he did that because he didn't want to take money from them. He didn't want to in any way distract from the gospel. And then after a period of time, he says, I even robbed from other churches. That is to say, Paul left his, his day job so that he could work full time in the ministry, but he took his funds from other churches. He says, I robbed other churches in order to be able to preach the gospel to you free of charge. And he says the whole time, these were difficult circumstances. They were hard on me. They were hard on, on the ministry. But I bore up, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, 12, I was bearing up. I was enduring 
because I didn't want to put a stumbling block in your way. Now, quite frankly, this is what happens when you minister in love. I mean, sometimes people are chasing after you. Sometimes people are coming to you. You love the people who are beating down your door, and they're always calling you, and they're always wanting to be with you, and they always want to be taught, and they always want to grow. But quite honestly, the people who need our attention the most are the people who aren't calling and the people who are on the fringe and on the edge and difficult to get through to and don't always want to follow through and all those things. And sometimes what we have to do is we have to shoulder, we have to put on our backs the burden of of not having any obstacle in their way. I mean, we, we sometimes think that people ought to be leaping over every hurdle to progress spiritually, but the reality is they don't. And so what do we do? We do all that we can to remove every impediment. And that often means sacrifice. It often means time. It often means devotion. It often means pain and suffering on our part. But Paul says love will do it. Or better yet, we will do it because of love. We will bear up with even inconsiderate people, irritating people, frustrating people, negative people, people who weary you, demanding people. We will bear up because of love. This is what Paul is essentially saying. Love does all that, and all the while it resists the internal urge to complain to malign, to gossip, to, to slander, to undermine, to belittle, to, to demean. Or even, in some cases, just to pull away, to isolate yourself and to build a barrier and a wall and avoid someone. I mean, that's obviously true in the church. It happens even in the home. Sometimes people are just difficult and And sometimes there's pain even from those who are closest to you. Sometimes even from your spouse, from your children, from your parents, whatever it might be. And the temptation on your part is to pull away, to isolate yourself, or in some cases to retaliate, to belittle, to humiliate, to do whatever you have to do. And what Paul's telling us is love doesn't flee to the safe place. It doesn't flee to the comfortable place. It doesn't flee to the quiet place or whatever it might be, it goes sometimes right into the teeth of difficult circumstances and difficult people and it bears. It does all of that and continues to show kindness and do deeds of kindness. You know, probably the most telling illustration of this and the way that Paul uses it is in Romans chapter 9. Romans Nine, and he says over in verse 22, talking about God and his electing mercy for us, he throws here in the middle of this discussion, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured, or same word, borne up, semantically, it's the same uh, uh, essential word. He says, what if love has borne up with much, much patience, or God has borne up with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. You know what he's saying here? That in the midst of God's mercy for us, he even shows mercy to the unrepentant, to those people 
whom he knows will never respond. You know, often when I'm talking to someone and they're kind of worn out and kind of weary and and wanting to flee and run away from some sort of ministry, and and what what I will often hear is, I have no idea if any of these efforts will ever come to any good. You know what? That's not your primary motivation. That is not your primary motivation. Your primary motivation ought to be the opportunity to be like your God. Who we're told not only here but in other places, He continues to to shower His rain on the just and the unjust. And what Paul tells us here is he's saying that God, hating sin and wanting to show His wrath and to make His power and His judgment known against it, nevertheless chooses to bear up against people who mock Him, who reject Him, who blaspheme His name, ridicule His word, spurn everything that He's about, and yet He continues to bestow kindnesses to them again and again and again. Your primary motivation for doing this is because this is what God does. And no matter what your situation, your ultimate reason in bearing up is because in some small degree, in your small corner of the world, with your relatively small uh, 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 issue or person of suffering, you can, in some small part, reflect and be like your gracious God and Savior. This is essentially what it means to bear up with difficult people, to do all we can to work with them when they wound you, when they shut you out of their fellowship or their social circle. They eliminate you or treat you with envy or jealousy or hate, spite. Paul says love suffers without retaliating. Difficult people who sometimes are in our care and we try to help them and they just keep stumbling and and we don't always want to keep going we work with frustrating people but paul says love will always do it in a redemptive in a redemptive way and now that takes us to the second attitude that paul gives here and it sort of progresses from there because paul says that in addition to bearing up In all bad things, love chooses to believe all the best things. Love believes all things. That word believe obviously is a broad word in the New Testament. It carries connotation everywhere from trusting in someone to being persuaded by someone, even to the point of relying on someone or or in some cases even applying implies obeying someone. But the difficulty here, as I mentioned earlier, is that Paul gives just this absolute hyperbolic sense, and, and it's up to us to supply the words that make it make sense in this context and in the context of all of Scripture. And so we understand that love, love bears uh, uh, excuse me, believes all the best. I mean, obviously, it's the natural inclination of our flesh to want to believe the worst about everyone. But Paul says, love here doesn't do that. It believes the best. That's not saying that it's gullible. That certainly isn't 
anything that's advocated in Scripture. It's just saying that it is affirming in the best possible way. Jesus himself had always the challenge of people who were promising to follow him, promising to believe him. John chapter 2 tells us that were many people who were professing to believe him and were told there that on his part, he did not entrust himself. Literally, he did not believe himself to them. Same word. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus wasn't gullible. He wasn't naive about human nature, about the nature of the flesh or the nature of sin or the nature of unbelief. Never was he naive about any of those things. And yet, there are numerous examples when Jesus was with people where he chose to highlight the best. So when Paul says this, believes all things, he's not talking, he's not encouraging you to be gullible to to not be in any way discerning. He's just saying, look, you need to accentuate the positive. You need to accentuate the positive. I mean, there's always people who can find in every meadow a manure pile, right? I mean, you're out there, you're looking, you say, man, isn't this just amazing? Like, you see a pile over there? And you bring up someone's life, and that's the way they are. Yeah, yeah, you know, you're talking about what God's doing in their life. Yeah, but... And they have to bring up some critique, they have to bring up some failure, some way in which they are not doing well. It's almost like they have to throw a fly in the ointment of their spiritual progress and their spiritual character. That's just the way some people are. And Paul's saying that's not how love reacts, that's not how love responds. And we, we know that, we feel that innately. And you're with someone and you're trying to talk about you know, someone's spiritual life and they just throw up something negative and you just, there's something in your spirit that doesn't feel right. And it doesn't feel right because that's not the way you would want to be represented, right? You know that's not the way you would want to be represented. If you weren't in the room, if you weren't around, we've all felt the sting of people somewhere along the way who seem to only be able to highlight the, the failures and never seem to pay attention to the progress, the good. Even one of the most glowing examples of this is given to us in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited to dine at the home of a Pharisee. And while at the dinner table, we're told that a woman of the city, a sinner, in other words, a, a prostitute, an immoral woman, a defiled woman, a woman who had chosen a pathway of sin in order to pursue material wealth. But this night she came into the room not looking for a customer, but she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now we don't have time to really unfold this, but but suffice it to say this is no small gift. This would have been a very expensive uh, 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 flask of oil. In fact, uh, she had apparently made a, a good deal of money because she had invested it in this flask of ointment, and it probably was one of the tools of her trade. And yet this night, 
we're told that she comes in as an act of repentance and as a gesture of worship. She begins to hang her head over the feet of Jesus and weep. As the tears roll off her face, falling over his feet, she begins to wipe off the dust and the dirt of his feet into her hair. And then she pours this very costly ointment over his feet. And Luke says, now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. And he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is who's touching me. But she's a sinner. I mean, all this guy seems to be able to do is muster a criticism. It's as as if he completely overlooks this amazing thing taking place in front of him, a thing which will be recorded indelibly in God's Word. And he completely misses it. Because all he knows how to do is highlight the negatives. And there are plenty to highlight. I mean, you could go on and on about her lifestyle, about her values, about her profession, about her greed, about her lack of faithfulness to God. You could probably excoriate her for families and homes that had been destroyed because of her work. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He obviously could have. He could have heaped all that shame, made her feel really bad for who she was. He wasn't unaware of the issues in her life, and he certainly did not approve of any of them. The defilement and the immorality and the greed and the rebellion against God and all those things. He didn't approve of any of those things. He was aware of them because later on in the, in the, in the narrative, he'll say, about her, that she has sins which are many, he says. And yet, he chooses to accentuate the positive. He highlights the gesture of faith that she was showing, and he minimizes all the past sins. He's believing the best things about her. He's highlighting the good. Now, obviously, this is challenging to do, especially with people who disappoint you time and time and time again. To to just come again and and just continue to highlight the the positives. And and it is necessary. We don't diminish the fact that sometimes it's necessary to talk to them in appropriate ways and at appropriate times about the negatives and in a redemptive way. But even apart from their company, Our task and our responsibility is as a loving brother and sister to accentuate what God is doing. You realize even when such people take advantage of your kindnesses, you're no fool for a desire and an effort to express the grace of your God in their life. They may be a fool for not seizing on that grace as an opportunity to progress and to benefit. But you're certainly no fool for reflecting the grace of your God. And all that sort of takes us to the next attitude that Paul has in mind here when he tells us there that love hopes. It hopes all things. This is powerful, especially if you understand hope 
in the, in the biblical sense. I mean, if you just trace through everything the Bible has to say about hope, what you'll find, for example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, we remember the steadfastness of your hope. Or, or you could render that your hope which produces steadfastness. So we understand that hope uh, creates this. It generates a steadfastness in your life, and it produces energy and enthusiasm. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God. In other words, Paul says the hope that's within us causes us in all the minutiae and all the difficulties to continue on pressing ahead with energy and enthusiasm in toiling and in striving. Or you can look and it says in Romans 12, 12 that, that hope brings joy. Or in the old proverb, the hope of the righteous brings joy. So hope generates joy in your heart. It generates confidence. 2 Timothy 3, since we have such a hope, we are very confident, Paul says. Or it says in, in Colossians 1 that, that faith and love are the product of hope. Paul says, we pray for you. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. So, so hope, in other words, if you study it out in Scripture, it produces all of these wonderful fruits in your life. Of course, when we're saying all these things, we're talking about a hope that is centered on God. There's all kinds of people who put their hope in false things and mystical things in 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 man-made efforts and man-made solutions. But when Paul speaks about hope in all of these ways, he's always talking about hope in God. And I don't see any reason to think that in 1 Corinthians 13, he's any different. He's talking here, I believe, about love always accounting for the grace of God in someone's life. Or we would say in this way, it doesn't necessarily hope in all people, but it hopes in all situations because its hope is ultimately grounded in God. As the saying goes, as long as the grace of God is operative, human failure is never final. As long as the grace of God is operative, human failure is never final. And so we might paraphrase what Paul says here as love refuses to take failure as final. I mean, that's obviously true, whether it's a brother or sister who is in the church and walking wayward or walking on the fringe or just not progressing. It's true sometimes in the life of a wayward child that you endeavored to raise up the best of your ability within the nurture and admonition of the Lord and admonish them and they've turned away from the Lord and yet you will not in love, you will not give up on them or an unbelieving spouse or whoever it might be or if you're working with someone who in ministry is just idle or lazy or disorderly or in some cases contentious or just overall apathetic or whatever it might be and you've worked with them and you just can't see in any way any progress much at all you work with them you help them you come to them and encourage them and before you know it they're right back into the same trap maybe where you found them you teach them they get training they get encouragement they get reminders they get strengthening they get all these things and sometimes in their life, there is 
there's, we would say, barely any perceptible growth. Although we have to step back and acknowledge that while we look on the outward man, only God looks at the heart. And we acknowledge that many times, while we can't see any change on the outside, massive things are happening on the inside. But it's during those seasons when we're tempted to give up. What allows you to keep ministering with all of these supposedly and outwardly unresponsive people? What is it that, that produces in you steadfastness, the energy, the enthusiasm, the joy, the confidence? And what is it that continues to even generate more love in your heart for them? Well, it's in a very simple way, it is love itself, but it is this kind of love that Paul's talking about that never takes failure as final. It can always find a reason to hope because it can always remember the grace of God. It, it faces disappointment, and when it does, it turns its mind back to the manifold grace of God in our own lives and how even with us, with, with sometimes very difficult habits of sin, God has patiently granted us grace to grow through it. I mean, I can tell you about things that that I go back a decade in my life and, I, and I, I see them there and I see them now and I wish they were completely gone and, and the growth just seems so slow. But thankfully, God doesn't give up on me. But it's hope that gives you the enthusiasm and the energy and the joy and the confidence to keep ministering in these people's lives and in these situations. When your heart is focused on the grace of God, not on the failures and disappointments of others, you can smile at the future. Now, there's obviously a point where it's out of your hands. People cut you off. They will not respond to your efforts to communicate. In order to secure their sin in the shroud of secrecy, they will no longer return phone calls or emails or letters or invitations or whatever it might be. But even then, love still hopes because it still understands the grace of God. It doesn't turn on that person. It doesn't turn into negativity. It doesn't demean and belittle. It doesn't resort to slander. It still hopes for the grace of God. You know, there are people that we have disciplined out of this church that I still pray for. I try to pray for every one of them every year, at least on their birthday. Many times I'll pray for them in between as the Lord brings them to mind, but I, I cannot stop loving and I cannot stop hoping that God's grace may do something, may trigger something, and they may repent and bring great glory to God and great blessing to themselves. Love never quits. Love will not stop loving. Which is really the fourth thing that Paul tells us here. Love endures all things, all bad things, all hard things. It simply endures. The word is hupomeno. It's a, a word that's used often in military manuals.
today to speak about detachments and divisions and battalions who are charged with the task of holding some key battleground spot at the cost of great suffering and great sacrifice and even personal loss at the onslaught of all kinds of violence, some people were charged to hold some key strategic ground. And Paul's telling us this is what love does. Love holds its position. It will not be moved away from loving. It doesn't get exhausted. It doesn't give in to hurts. And, and, and sins and disappointments, it will not stop because it endures. Or another way to say this is there is no until in love. Love doesn't say, I'm going to love you until. Until whatever. Because love has no conclusion. It stands against all the overwhelming odds. It refuses to stop loving, to stop bearing, to stop believing, to stop hoping. Now, I love that, that little phrase, one of my favorite in the Bible, in John 13. As Jesus prepares to go that evening to be betrayed by a friend, to be delivered up for crucifixion the next morning. You can just imagine what's going through his heart and mind. And he, he's not only doing that, but he's preparing himself to give one of these key vital lessons to his disciples he's going to pick up a basin and a towel and wash their dirty feet but while he's doing that they're in the midst of some raging internal battle about who deserves more glory and who deserves higher position and higher praise in the kingdom and so john begins that whole scene that whole scenario with these words jesus having loved his own loved them to the end His love couldn't stop. I mean, it could go through the insensitivity. It could go through all of the pride and all the arrogance. And it can even go through the complete ignorance of his own suffering by all these, his closest friends. And he could love him to the end. Love remembers Jesus' words when he talks about 70 times 7. That's how many times it'll forgive. That's how many times it loves. You know, of course, those words mean forever. It doesn't give up. Paul says, I endure all things. I endure all things for the sake of the elect. He gives that right after he just told Timothy that if you're going to minister to people, you need to bring the mindset, he says in 1 Timothy 2, of sharing together in the sufferings of Christ as a good soldier. That is to say, you'll never No matter who you're ministering to, you will never be treated with more contempt, with more disrespect. You will never be blasphemed as badly. You'll never deal with a more hard-hearted sinner than Christ Himself dealt with. And so if you're going to minister in any kind of way, you need to bring that kind of mentality and be prepared to endure all of it for the sake of the elect. Now, you know, I can't think about endurance without, or at least in the context of a church, I can't think about endurance without thinking about the Thessalonian church. It was the endurance church. I mentioned it a little bit earlier. Uh, Paul had probably ministered there no more than three months when he was immediately 
stripped or ripped away from them because of persecution. And not only that, but the church itself was left behind to face all the onslaught of this, of this turmoil and this attack from outside while their leader and their beloved shepherd had been torn away from them. And so here they are, infants really in Christ, left all alone to face the ravenous wolves of the world, and they stood strong. And Paul commends them in the Corinthian letter again and again and again for that steadfastness. But you know, as a pastor, he wasn't just concerned with their endurance against hostile threats on the outside. Because he knew that what often trips up young believers or even long-standing believers aren't the threats that come from the outside. It's the pains and the hurts that come inside. You know, I've been in ministry a number of years. I don't think I've ever encountered anyone who left a church because of outside pressure. It always happens because of inside disappointment. So here's Paul, and he's looking at this church, and he's imagining just how wonderfully they've done at standing against all of the hostile forces on the outside. And the last thing he wanted them to do in the midst of all that great testimony is then to be tripped up by something that happens on the inside. And so he writes this book, and he's, he's telling them uh, or, or admonishing them in the midst of all this, uh, that, that they need to remember love. He tells them in 1 uh, Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love and steadfastness of hope. Later on in chapter 4, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, we have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout all Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And what he's saying is you can never, you can never be satisfied with your efforts in this area. You can never stop being focused on the need to love one another internally. It is the greatest challenge you have, more than even what comes on the outside. He'll actually go on in chapter 5 and he'll say this, We ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul's so concerned because he understands what ultimately kills a church. It isn't the attacks from the outside. It's what grieves you on the inside. You sit with people who are under the same teaching, who've heard the same principles, who proclaim the same gospel, who worship the same Lord, and yet they turn around and they act selfishly, stubbornly, in an undisciplined way, lazy way, or sometimes just downright mean 
And Paul says, look, I want to urge you all the more. Love one another. Love those who are over you. They're going to disappoint you. But esteem them highly in love. Love those who are beside you, the faint-hearted, the weak, all those people who are, who are just stumbling along the way, those who are idle. Love them. And love even those who give you evil. Don't repay evil in return, but do them good. This is the threat. This is the challenge. This is the high calling of God and of His gospel. But the scripture says those who know God know love. And this is the measure of their spirituality. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful in the past weeks for this very compelling passage, very compelling truths that come to us not only from these verses, but from every corner of your word. They come to us because they come from you. You are loving. You endure so much even with us. You bear up under all of our disappointments. You constantly shower us with kindness. And it is your grace which fills us with so much blessing which we could never claim, protects us from so much harm that we could bring on ourselves. Lord, you guard us from ultimate humiliation. You seem to shower us with favor. You teach us so much by your love for us and by the love of our Savior. You teach us so much by this passage. We simply ask for the working of your Spirit through the instrument of your Word. Help us to love one another more and more. We pray in Christ's name.